The richest home in the world is owned by a man named Mukesh Ambani. It's valued at about a billion dollars. It's 27 stories high, a mere modest 400,000 square feet inside. And in this home, it's got a garage with a space for 168 cars, three helipads on the roof, a lobby with nine elevators, a spa, a swimming pool, an in-house theater, and a staff of about 600 whose only occupation is to maintain this residence for five people, Ambani, his wife, and his three kids. And yet, despite all the luxuries of that place, what is most striking about it, what people have talked the most about, is actually where it's located. You see, this 27-floor palace isn't found on some private island in the Caribbean, but instead is in the busy and noisy streets of Mumbai. In fact, to be more specific, it's within a stone's throw away from the slums of Mumbai. In fact, KMP, the red light district where two missionaries from this church have moved over to fight human trafficking, is a little over a mile away from this grand structure. So you imagine, you wonder, what must it be like to descend from the 27th floor of this tower? It's got its own name. It's called the Antilia. What must it be like to descend from the 27th floor of the Antilia to come out the front doors and within moments, within minutes, to be in the lanes and alleys of Bombay slum? Right? What must it be like to step out of a place where surely every room is immaculate and pristine and perfect to suddenly be confronted with the sights and sounds and smells of the slums of Bombay, to go from a place where perhaps five people speak among 400,000 square feet of space, to now be confronted with alleys where literally millions of people are crammed in and the noise and bustle of a street in Bombay. What must it be like to go from 27 floors up where you are shielded from all the problems that everyday people face on the ground floor to suddenly walking out those front doors and having all those problems hit you in the face? I think whatever that feel must feel like is what this passage this morning feels like. It's been two weeks, but when we were in Mark last, Mark had us up on the mountaintop with Jesus. If you remember the scene, it was this private moment with just Jesus and three of his disciples and two visitors who showed up on that mountaintop. And in this private scene, in this moment, it was as if for a moment Jesus gave them a glimpse of who he really was. Throughout Mark, that's been the question we've been asking. Who is this Jesus? And for a moment, it's as if the veil was pulled back and you got to see Jesus as he really was. Not just a carpenter from Nazareth, not a man with calloused hands who looks like everyone else, but for a moment peeled back that you saw this is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, full of glory and majesty and splendor. And in that moment you saw as Jesus, as he really was, was visited by Moses and Elijah two of the premier prophets of the Old Testament. And if that company wasn't sacred enough, a cloud rolled over and then you heard the voice of the Father himself. God the Father shouted out and spoke, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. 
The scene was so magnificent, so rapturous, so glorious, that Peter couldn't help but blurt out, maybe we should build some tents and stay up here. Right? Peter couldn't stop himself. He suggested, let, let me live here. In fact, it's almost as if Peter would say, listen, I've been on the ground floor. I could get used to the 27th floor. Let's just stay up here. But of course, they don't. Instead, in a moment, Elijah and Moses vanish. And in the next moment, the cloud covering Jesus disappears. And Jesus looks normal again. And it's just them. And they start walking down the mountain. And when they get to the bottom, as you heard just read for you by Joe right now, it's almost as if it would have been like stepping out of the Antilia into KMP, into the red light district. Because what Mark 9 does is it gives you a journey up to the mountaintop and then down to the valley low. And you feel the stark contrast between the two. You go from a quiet, private conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah to where now you are suddenly met by this noisy squabble among the great crowds, Mark 9 tells us, and the disciples and the scribes as they're bickering back and forth. You go from relational harmony, the father saying, this is my beloved son to immediately at the valley floor, this great relational conflict. They're at each other's throats. They're squabbling and fighting with one another. You go from the kingdom of God dominating the scene up there to the kingdom of Satan dominating the world down here. A boy is possessed by a demon that is out to destroy him. And you go from seeing a happy father who is delighted in his glorious son to now at the valley floor meeting a helpless father who is distraught over his tortured, possessed son. The scene is striking in its contrast. And though you'd be tempted to laugh at Peter for suggesting it, you get why he would say, let's just build some tents and stay up there. Life on the 27th is much better than life on the ground floor. Let's live there. And yet... Jesus is intent on descending down that mountain, on coming into the valley. After all, this is why he came. I was struck two weeks ago as Sibby preached through the transfiguration on seeing not just what happened up there on the mountain, but the fact that Jesus left the mountain to come back down. Struck because, after all, that's why Jesus came. You see, if, if Jesus was trying to avoid the mess of life in the valley if he was trying to sidestep the slums or bypass the lanes and alleys of this broken world, then surely he could have stayed in heaven, much less on the mountaintop. See, he lived in a world that made the Antilia look like a tower built with Legos. That's what it looked like in comparison. By the way, if you've seen a picture of it, it does look like a Lego tower. Right? He's been in that world, and yet he came down from that world, not just to come to the top of a mountain, but to trek all the way down to the valley floor to meet us in the mess, to redeem us from the mess, to allow the mess of life in this broken world to disfigure him, to be on him on that cross. That's what Jesus came for. And what you learn in Mark 9 is, not only has Jesus come for that, Jesus seems very committed to making sure that his disciples follow him into that. That Jesus is intent on showing us that if we're going to be his followers, we've got to follow Jesus 
into the valley floor, into the mess, into the mud and the muck and the mire, because that's where Jesus intends for his disciples to live out their lives and carry out his works. In their ministry, it's going to be there with all the sights and sounds and smells of life in a broken world. That's where we are called by Jesus to follow him into living our lives and doing ministry. Listen, for all of us, maybe for many of us, at some points maybe you've come to these certain spiritual sort of high moments where you can relate to what it was like to be on the 27th or on the mountaintop. Maybe you've gone to a Christian retreat or a spiritual conference, or maybe it's even been some certain Sundays here. In those moments, you've known what it's like to sort of feel very close to God, where you're sort of shielded from all the stuff of everyday life and all the the relational problems that are waiting for you, all the bickering, all the difficulties and temptations. In that spot, in that moment, you felt close to Christ. And if you've ever been there, you've also known the feeling of wishing that you could somehow bottle that feeling up. Like somehow if you could maintain that fervor, sustain that zeal and that passion that you felt in that special place and and feel like all of life should feel like this. But you know that God seems very intent on never letting you stay there. The retreat place kicks you out. The conference comes to an end. Sunday turns into Monday. And when it does you're right back in the real life of the real world where things are broken and there's conflict and you struggle with temptations and difficulties and obstacles of every way. Jesus is showing us that's because my disciples don't huddle up on the 27th floor. No, I'm very intent on bringing them to the ground floor and having them scatter into the streets and alleyways of this broken world where they will carry on my work. Jesus has a purpose for bringing his disciples into this valley. And here's what we'll learn. In this moment, now on the bottom of the valley floor, Jesus is going to use this moment to teach his disciples and us, if we'll listen, a very important lesson. And here it is. God helps those who acknowledge that they can't help themselves. That's the lesson Jesus' intent on teaching us this morning from this scene. That God helps those who acknowledge that they can't help themselves. It was Ben Franklin who made a very similar sounding sentence popular in our ears. Ben Franklin coined the phrase or popularized the phrase that God helps those who help themselves. This passage at least is teaching us the very opposite of that. That God helps those who acknowledge that they can't help themselves. In fact, in this story, what you're going to see is that Jesus, very graciously, full of love and mercy, is going to allow the people in this story to see that they're helpless. And once they see that they're helpless, he's going to help them. Because God helps those who acknowledge that they can't help themselves. Look at how it starts, verse 14. This is Mark 9. Page 844, verse 14, it begins this way. And when they came to the disciples, that's Jesus and Peter and James and John, they've come back from the mountain, and now they're coming to the other nine who were left in the valley, at the bottom of the mountain. And when they, that's Jesus and that small crew, come back to the other nine, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. 
And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So Jesus steps off the mountain and immediately he's caught in the fray. The sights that he sees is a big, large mass of people, the great crowds, disciples, scribes. The sounds that he hears at the valley floor is the squabble and bickering and fighting back and forth, the argument between them all. And Jesus, verse 16, says, what are you all arguing about? Verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. So here's what happens. Jesus says, listen, what's all this argument about? And before the disciples can say anything, before the scribes can say anything, a man raises his hand and he says, Jesus, here's what happened. It's a man from the crowd and he begins to explain what this hullabaloo is about. He begins to say, listen, I have a boy. He's He's possessed, he's oppressed by this evil spirit. It makes him rigid, it's seeking to destroy him. So I came to you. Perhaps this man had seen Jesus before, heard about Jesus before. Whatever it is, he knows what Jesus can do for people in his state. And so he brought this boy to Jesus. But what happened? Jesus wasn't there. Jesus was up on the mountain. And so he sort of had to settle for the B team. Right? He had to settle for the disciples. It's sort of like if you drove down to the Eagles Stadium today, where the start of a new season, and you walk into the stadium and you're told, you know, you were expecting a great season, but the starting quarterback has been traded, Bradford's gone, Carson Wentz isn't quite ready, so we're going to go with Chase Daniels. Right? If you were told nobody's here but Chase Daniels, you'd go, all right. Right? There goes the season in a sense. But, but what do you go? Nobody's there for the backup, but you're just hoping maybe they can get it done. That's the man. I heard what you could do, or I've seen what you could do. Here's the state my boy is in, so I brought him to you. You weren't there. You were up there. So I gave him to your disciples. And then here's the phrase you should pay attention to. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. They were not able. The disciples had a moment where Jesus wasn't present with them. They had to step up in that moment and carry out Jesus' ministry, and they were not able. Now, part of us wants to say what's being asked of them is crazy. A man brings a demon-possessed boy and says, do something about this. But what should be puzzling to us is they've actually done this before. In fact, just a few chapters ago, you would have noticed that the disciples had cast out demons, but not here, not this time. They could do it before, they couldn't do it now, and so you're left going, why? How come? We'll find out later, but for now, here's what I want you to see. You have to sort of feel for these disciples. In fact, I think the most pathetic part, the most pitiful part, the most part that should capture your compassion is... The worst part is it says, and they were not able. They were not able, meaning they had tried. They were not able, meaning they had tried, meaning the dad didn't come up to Jesus and say, I brought my son to your disciples, and they wouldn't do anything about it. The dad comes and says, I brought my boy to your disciples, and they couldn't do anything about it, meaning they tried. Could you picture that for a moment? That when this dad brought this boy to them and a crowd started to form, they tried to cast it out. Could you imagine how embarrassing that scene must have been? That the disciples had essentially said, everybody step back, 
we've done this before, we've got this, and that the disciples actually came out of their mouth, get out, demon, and nothing happened. And everybody saw it. Maybe they backed up again and they looked at their fingers and they tried again, get out, I said, and nothing happens. And now sweat beads are starting to form on their brow and they're asking one another, why isn't it working this time? Did we say it different last time? What was the exact phrase? Are we supposed to say, out now, get out? Like, what, what, what should we do? And, and you can imagine now, as they're trying and they're not able, the dad is getting frustrated. The crowds are booing the backup QB. And now everybody, there's, a, there's sort of an embarrassment to the whole thing. And then, worst of all, it's one thing that, that the crowds are booing, the dad's frustrated. Worst of all, we're told that the scribes were there. There's one people you didn't want to flop in front of. It was the scribes. The scribes are always picking a fight with Jesus and his disciples. You could flop and fail in front of all kinds of people, but not in front of the scribes. It's, it's like, ladies, you might burn dinner a thousand times, but not when your mother-in-law is present, right? <laughs> or guys, you might drop the baby a thousand times, but not when your mother-in-law is present, right? These scribes are like vultures that are, and not that your mother-in-law is like a vulture. That's not what I was trying to say. These scribes are sort of like vultures that are circling around Jesus and his disciples, looking for a moment to swoop down and pick them apart. And the disciples have just handed them an opportunity on a golden plate. They flopped and they failed in front of the crowds and in front of the dad and in front of the scribes. And so you can imagine the scribes didn't waste a second. They jumped right in to start arguing. Maybe they said, that's not how you're supposed to do it. Maybe they said, that's not what you're supposed to say. Maybe they said, see, we knew you were frauds. Your master's a fraud, you're a fraud, and now everybody knows it. Whatever it was, that's what Jesus just walked into. The crowds booing the backup QB, the dad frustrated, helpless again, the scribes picking a fight and bothering and picking on these disciples, and the disciples who in that moment were a total flop and failure. Right? Mind you, by the way, these are the ones that Jesus intends to leave his entire ministry to. He just stepped up a mountain and came back, and by then they had already messed the whole thing up. And you have to imagine Jesus thinking to himself, guys, you're the plan, right? There's no plan B. You're the plan of what I'm going to do when I leave. You're the ones that are going to have to carry out my ministry from here on out. I just stepped up to the mountain for a second. How long am I going to be here? In fact, that's what he says, verse 19. He steps off the mountain into that chaos, and then he says, verse 19, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Right, you'd imagine like a teacher that just walked into a noisy, disruptive classroom. The scribes are attacking, the crowds are booing, the dad is frustrated, and all the while, mind you, there's a demon-possessed boy foaming at the mouth, rolling on the floor in the center of all this. And Jesus walks in and he says, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to bear with you? Now, we're not told exactly who those words are aimed at. You imagine it includes the disciples. 
that surely they were within the view of those words that Jesus meant them to hear. Listen, guys, how long am I going to be here? How long are we going to do this where you don't get it? But, but certainly whatever was lacking in the disciples was lacking in the crowds and in the scribes and in the dad you'll see in a moment. And so Jesus perhaps addresses all of them. This whole generation, nobody gets it. Haven't you noticed that in Mark so far? Nobody gets it. His family doesn't get it. His friends don't get it. The disciples don't get it. The Pharisees don't get it. Nobody gets it. And so in a valley filled with unbelievers and skeptics and doubters and critics, Jesus stands alone. And at this point in the story, here's what I want you to see. Everybody in the story has hit a wall. Everybody is in over their heads. Nobody has what this moment needs. Hear that. Nobody has what it takes. The scribes and the, the crowds, they're sort of like background scenery. They're not even really in the story, but we know they can pick a fight. They can't help. They didn't say, hey, everyone watch out. We'll take care of this. They can't do anything. But the main characters in the story, the dad and the disciples, they can't do anything either. And so at this point in the story, everybody is helpless. Helpless. Take that word in. Everybody in the story is helpless. And now here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to very graciously show this dad and these disciples that they are helpless. And once they see it, he's going to help them. Because God helps those who acknowledge that they can't help themselves. Let's deal with the disciples first. They tried, remember? And again, we said before, what makes this most curious is they had done this before. In fact, if you read in Mark 6, it tells us that the disciples had cast out, and it adds the word, many demons. Not just one or two. They had already cast out many demons, meaning they're not rookies or novices at this. This isn't their first time. And yet here, they couldn't do it. Why? How come? Well, they're just as curious about how come as you might be. And so they ask Jesus. In fact, when this whole thing is over, they pull Jesus aside and say, how come? Look at how this ends in verse 28. And when they had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Verse 29. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They go, Jesus... How come we couldn't do it this time? And Jesus simply responds, this required prayer. Now listen, he doesn't specify how much prayer, what kind of prayer, what words should have been prayed, how long that prayer should have been. He simply says, this required prayer. The implication then is, the disciples hadn't done what? Prayed. This required prayer, the implication is, the disciples hadn't prayed. Apparently, it seems that when the man showed up with the boy, rolling on the floor, rigid, locked jaw, foaming at the mouth, oppressed by a demon, it seems that the disciples decided to roll up their sleeves, ask everyone to stand back and say, we've got this, we've done this before, and said, get out. And nothing happened. 
Now, you hear that, and you can't help but sort of smile. You can't help but sort of chuckle and go, you, you think about this. A demon-possessed boy shows up on the floor, and nobody thought to just say, God, help. Nobody thought to pray. You almost want to put yourself in the story and go, surely, if I was in the story, I would have at least called a timeout and had a small prayer meeting on the side. Surely, we wouldn't have walked into that moment prayerless. And yet, I think we're supposed to see in the story, before you shake your head at the disciples, think through this. How often do you and I swing our feet out of bed in the morning and fly into the day at 90 miles an hour, gliding from task to task to task until the day is done? And sure, we may every now and then give God a nod and bow our heads and close our eyes. And listen, this is not false guilt here. I don't want any of you to feel fake guilt. To be honest, I want to say I don't think it's malicious I don't think it's sinister. I don't even think it comes from evil intent. In fact, to be honest, I think we may be completely, absolutely unaware that our prayerlessness expresses an incredible amount of faith in ourselves. I don't think it's sinister. I don't think it's malicious. I don't think it's with purposeful evil intent. But I think we may be completely unaware that our lack of constant, desperate, continual, dependent prayer reveals that deep down we've got an incredible amount of faith in ourselves. That we are unbelievably self-reliant and independent and self-sufficient. That essentially you and I move about our day as we do about our week, as we do about our months, and as we do about our years, basically rolling up our sleeves and going, we've got this. An incredible amount of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and faith in yourselves. Right? Our lack of dependent, consistent, constant, continual, desperate prayer reveals that the currency of our lives reads, in me I trust. Your prayerless life, my prayerless life, shouts that the currency of our lives reads, In me, I trust. And often, friends, Seven Mile Road, hear me. Often, it's not until you hit a wall. Often, it's not until you flop and fumble and fail. Often, it's not until God lets you come to the end of yourself. And listen, on God's part, it's not sinister. It's not with evil intent. It's not malicious. It's not wicked. It's actually grace and mercy to let you come to the end of yourself so that you finally see your need for Him. You see, there's nothing like past accomplishments, previous successes to blind you to your present need for God. There's nothing like, I did this before, that blinds you from, I need Him to be able to do this now. There's nothing like a season where things are going well to blind you from the fact That if God doesn't get involved, you're done. God lets us very graciously hit a wall, come to the end of ourselves, flop and fumble and fail. I can tell you for every believer here, you could share stories about that. I can tell you in just the last few weeks how God has graciously let me hit a wall. We've got this conference that we've been talking about with our church for about a year called Advance. Our hope is to see a movement of gospel-centered, multi-ethnic churches planted. 
This is by no means going to be a big, huge conference. We have no imagination of it as such. And yet, the registration has been open for months. We've got 56 registered. 56. I'm not expecting thousands, but I am hoping to break 100. 56. And so what have we done? We've rolled up our sleeves. We have tried every marketing thing we could think of. We have blitzed Facebook with every video. I am in good clothes. I am speaking in these videos as eloquently as I can. We are, we are calling every person we know. We are trying to reach out to contacts and spread word in every way that we can. Until you hit a wall and you go, we can't do this. All the charisma in the world can't accomplish this. And so you hit a wall until you're brought to desperate prayer. Prayer. And I will tell you, in a week of that kind of desperate praying, the registrations went from 56 to 84, eight of which came this morning. God does stuff like that. I can tell you for Shainu and I, we hit a wall with parenting in just the last few weeks. Any of you who are parents would know, you have tried to read every book that's ever been recommended to you. You've listened to everything there is to listen to. You've taken all the advice and you've tried all the strategies. Have you tried speaking to them like this? Maybe we need to put them to bed earlier at this time. Have, how about this? You've tried all of it until you hit a wall and you go, I, I can't. There's not enough in me to be able to get into that mind or into that heart or into those eyes or into those ears until you hit a wall and God in grace lets you fumble and flop and fail so that you step back and go, until the Lord builds the house, the work of the laborers is in vain. And you're driven to desperate, dependent prayer. God does that for us. Because I want you to hear you and I might give lip service to the idea that we're insufficient, we're inadequate, we can't do life or ministry, we're not enough. But here's the evidence. If you really believe that, you will pray. And if you don't, you won't. I could give lip service all day to how I am insufficient and inadequate for life and ministry and the things God's called me to. If I really believe that, I will pray, and if I don't, I won't. This isn't fake guilt. This is Jesus using this moment in this valley to teach his disciples an incredibly important lesson. You see, Jesus in that moment in Mark 9 knew, in a very short while, I'm about to go to heaven, and you're going to be left to do ministry, and, and I will not be bodily present with you anymore. And what those disciples will face and what we still face is we're going to have to do this ministry. And so you need to learn very quickly, God helps those who acknowledge that they can't help themselves. God helps those who acknowledge that they're helpless. He needs the disciples to know your past accomplishments does not erase your present need for God. And for you to express that need principally through prayer. He, he wants them to know that. And friends, Road, I want to give you an encouraging word, which is that I think the disciples understood that lesson. I think they understood because when you read through the book of Acts and Jesus actually did go to heaven, you find the disciples were committed to constant, continuous, desperate, dependent prayer in God. 
I read this very, at least for me, convicting quote. Speaking about prayer, it said this, the early church was characterized by uneducated men agonizing, while often today's church is characterized by educated men organizing. And if there's any truth to that, here at Seven Mile Road, God help us, that has to change. God help us, that has to change. Well, that's the disciples. What about the dad? And let me walk you through this quickly. Jesus is going to show this dad, just like he did the disciples, that he's helpless as well, except there's going to be one big difference. Look at this in verse 19. When the disciples had flopped and failed, Jesus takes matters into his own hands. Verse 19, bring him to me, right? Bring the boy to me. Verse 20, and they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth, And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, verse 22. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. And then listen to this. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Listen to that. But if you can do anything, have compassion. He's essentially saying, have a heart and help us. The dad had brought this boy, this boy that he's watched go through this from his childhood on. Imagine that. And he brought this boy as one last ditch effort to these disciples. They couldn't do anything. And at this point, the man's not sure anybody can do anything. And so he finally says to Jesus, listen, this has been going on for years. If you can do anything, please have a heart, have compassion on us and help us. Did you take in his question? If you can do anything, please help us. Till now in Mark, we've seen people question Jesus' willingness, but not his ability. Right? In Mark, if you remember way back earlier, a leper came to him and said, If you will, you can make me clean. The man had no doubt about whether Jesus could. He wasn't sure if Jesus would. Not this man. This man is not sure if Jesus will. But moreover, he takes the doubt up a notch and says, I'm not even sure you can. If you can do anything, please have a heart, have compassion on us, and help us. And Jesus responds to the man, if you can. I I sort of wish I could hear the tone in which Jesus said that, don't you? I I heard one person say rightly, you can be sure he didn't say it like a Pharisee would. If you can, how dare you say, if you can. But I do wonder in what tone he said it. If you can. This man has just said, if you can do anything. And Jesus responds back, if you can. It's like one pastor said, it's almost as if Jesus is saying to the man, my friend, you've got the if in the wrong place here. All things are possible for one who believes. This is not about if I can. This is about if you believe. You see, he he turns this on the man and says, you've got the if in the wrong place. There's no shortage of my power or my willingness here in the valley. The question is, is there faith in you? This is not about if I can. This is about if you believe. I can heal your boy if you believe. Hear that. I can heal your boy if you believe. That means that what's required in this moment is a kind of faith this man clearly doesn't have. 
What's required in this moment is faith. And if there's one thing the man doesn't seem to have, it's exactly that. And so what this man does is he hits a wall right now. What's required, it's almost as if he says, look, if my boy who's been struggling from this from childhood on, what's required for him to be delivered of this is faith, then I'm toast. Because I, I don't have it. At least not the way or the kind or the amount that I think you mean. Right? This, this man hits a wall. He's in over his head. If strong faith is what's required for my boy to no longer go through this, then I'm done. But here's the difference at my road. This man is helpless, and he knows it. Moreover, he acknowledges it. The difference is the disciples were blind to their need for God, and so they did not seek his help. But this man, this man is very aware of his need for God. And so he cries out for help. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. It's incredible. This man came to get help for his boy, but Jesus brought him to see that he needed help for something deeper and more as well. He needed help with faith itself. He came to ask, help my boy. He's now in this moment going, help me. I believe, help my unbelief. And this man in that moment, hear this, prays this incredibly paradoxical prayer. I believe, Lord, except that I don't. I've got faith in you, except that I have doubts in you. I believe you with all my heart, except the part of my heart that I don't believe you with. I'm totally trusting in you, except for the fact that I totally don't trust you. What kind of a weak, conflicted, weird prayer is that? Surely this is the weakest of all prayers. He says to Jesus, I believe, but I'm also riddled with doubt, so help. Now, our natural instinct would be to imagine that at this point we should all stand back because Jesus is going to unload on this guy. You'd imagine that surely Jesus would say to him, you can't imagine that you're going to come to me with that kind of weak, half-hearted, sort of kind of faith, do you? You'd imagine that Jesus would say to him, what do you think you're going to get from me, coming to me with that kind of a crooked, divided heart? That surely Jesus would say, you get out of here, go fix that divided heart of yours, put your total trust in me, and then come back and ask for blessing. Instead, what do you read? 25 through 27, Jesus healed the boy. Not just healed him, cast out the demon, told the demon, never come back. The dad doesn't even have to worry, is this thing going to come back to my boy? And this boy is restored, put to health, and given back to this dad. Now, friends, here's what I want you to ask. Why? Why does he do that, and what does that mean then? For this man, for the disciples, for us? Here's the sentence I want you to hear. It means that weak faith in Jesus is better than strong faith in yourself. Right? Someone said that rightly. I agree 100%. Weak faith in Jesus is better than strong faith in yourself. It means that God resists those 
who are self-sufficient and independent and self-reliant and therefore prayerless. But instead, he helps those who acknowledge their helplessness, that they can't help themselves. One pastor rightly said, listen, true faith is not coming up to Jesus and saying, I'm faithful, now bless me. True faith would not have been this dad saying, okay, you require faith for my boy to be healed, rolls up his sleeves and says, I have faith, now do it. That would be faith in yourself and not in Jesus. True faith comes to Jesus and says, I'm not faithful. I believe, but I've got these pockets of doubt and unbelief. I want to believe, but I have questions lingering. True faith comes and says, you require faith and I'm lacking it, so help. And that kind of faith is faith in Jesus and not in yourself. And in that helplessness, you honestly say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's true faith. And Jesus is showing this dad and these disciples that weak faith in him is better than strong faith in yourself. So friends, where are you this morning? I would say again, as we did even to the first service, to my dear sister or brother, who at this very moment is bothered by nagging questions, who is fretting over doubts that they find in their soul, who isn't sure if the Lord will accept them because I don't fully trust, at least not the way that I think you need me to or the amount that I should, and so I can't do anything but cry out help. Would you right now let this man give you language for your prayer? You should pray, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. For my dear sister or brother that has hit a wall, you find that you're flopping and failing. Would you see this morning that God isn't mad at you? There's nothing sinister or evil or malicious in that heart of his as he's watching you flounder. Instead, in grace and mercy to you, he is bringing you to the end of yourself so that you might learn not to depend on yourself but on him. Would you see it? right now as grace and mercy to you, showing you your need for him. And for my dear sister or brother, not fake worldly condemnation and guilt, but if the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you about your prayerlessness, that what your prayerlessness is expressing is, in me I trust, then today, repent. Repent of that idolatry You've replaced God with me. And change that sentence to be, in God I trust. And so abandon your idolatry and say, I'm not God. I can't do this. And so let that desperate need drive you to prayer. If the Spirit convicts you of that, repent and come right to God about it. The truth is we're helpless. But there's good news for us this morning. And the good news is that God helps those who acknowledge that they can't help themselves. Let's pray together.